0: Listening to the TCB Radio Network. Hello, friends, this is Elvis
1: Presley. I am Marion Park, the official sex symbol on TCB
2: Radio Network. This is Mindy Miller.
1: This is Ray Walker from The Jordanaires. This
2: is Elvis' Speedway co-star, Victoria Paige Myrick. This is Cynthia Pepper from Jason Cousins. This is Zoe Gotto, author of Elvis Style, From Suits to Jumpsuits. This
1: is Don Wilson. And if you're looking for Elvis, you're in the right place, TCB Radio Network.
2: Words it's all about Elvis. Everything
1: is about Elvis. It is
0: all about Elvis.
2: All Elvis, all the time. If you want to listen to something
0: really stylish, Listen
1: to tcbradionetwork.com. You can't do any better than that. So stay
0: with us. People who know Elvis know about TCB Radio Network, where it's all Elvis, all the time. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here, sir.
2: USA Today Network, Memphis, The City Magazine, ABC, Fox News, Digital, and so many more. We are delighted today to welcome him to TCB Radio Network. He was friend to Elvis Presley and legendary Shelby County Sheriff, Mayor, political figure, humanitarian. And now he's an author. His autobiography, Bill Morris, A Legendary Life, is now available for purchase at novel bookstores in Memphis, as well as through his website, BillMorrisbook.com. We have the link to it on our website as well. Today he hopes to shed new light on his friend Elvis, a reigning music music icon who Bill feels is still greatly misunderstood. Bill Morris, thank you for being on the show with us today.
1: Well, I'm delighted to have the opportunity. I've always enjoyed talking about my relationship with Elvis. And hopefully, you have a different impression than a lot of people have because he was a lot more than just the music that he performed.
0: Well, that's awesome. And so, you know what, Bill? Let's go ahead and start all the way back at the beginning and just kind of share with our audience how you and Elvis' lives became connected and intertwined.
1: Well, we neither... Realized how closely aligned we were in that before he was born, I was born, his parents lived in a small country community near Tupelo where my family lived. And it was deep in the depression where there was no money and very few jobs. And that's when his father got in trouble and had to go to prison for a period of time for having a check that bounced on him. And then when he, when he left there, uh, my family, by the way, lost their farm because they couldn't pay a bank uh, loan off of very few dollars to ha- have their crop. So anyhow, those were bad times. And then he moved to East Superlow, family did, and that's where Elvis was born. And he lived until he was 13 years of age. And then looking for work, not having enough work, he, his family, transferred to Memphis. Along the same time, my family, uh, began to move around because there were no jobs in that part of Mississippi. And it was a, it was sort of like you really had to scratch out every day uh, how you were going to make it. Meanwhile, I was, I lived in a little town just a few miles from where this was. And, uh, my family moved to Memphis at time. His family moved to Memphis and I stayed in Mississippi. And I went to work for a newspaper, uh, a small newspaper where I stayed all through high school and junior college. That's where, uh, I my values were established working for people who mentored me in a small agricultural high school and college. And Elvis, on the other hand, was mentored by a very loving mother and a church relationship in East on, uh, in East Tupelo. And then, of course, moved to Memphis, lived in homes uh, that were governmental homes, subsidized homes, and my wife, Anne and Elvis were in the same class at, in high school and they graduated at the same time in 1953. I went to the graduation and it was sometime after that, I went into the army and he started doing music shortly after he got out of high school. And I, I came back to Memphis about the same time. He was doing extremely well. And, and of course he, he went into the army after that. But then I got to know him personally when he moved into the Grayson Mansion. I sold printing, and uh, as a printing salesman, I talked that out, um, and so then we hooked up, got to be friends, realized how many connections we had, and we've had a solid friendship after that, and began to, when I got into politics, I ran for sheriff during the Civil Rights uh, uh, era. Uh, at the time I ran for sheriff, I was 31 years of age, no law enforcement experience, but what was so great, the way I lived in small town, in Mississippi, uh, blacks and whites who are with the same economic level shared the same beat down, if you would, uh, from the people who had resources. And so we had uh, both of us, Elvis and I both, when we came to Memphis, we didn't come with prejudices. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the greatest characteristics I can tell you about Elvis. He never once that I ever see, uh, see him act with any prejudice toward any culture or group of people. I came the same way. And when the Civil Rights Act was passed, then I felt like I could do what needed to be done with the Civil Rights Act because what was happening in this, this city, in this county of almost a million people, uh, we had segregated law enforcement guys. They, blacks would have a badge, and whites would have a badge, but blacks couldn't arrest white people. Now, that was traumatic for me. Wow. People, people were hired. On different levels, and so that all changed. And then, of course, we went through uh, all the, sanit- the sanitation strikes and labor unrest, and, as well as civil unrest. And uh, it's—I was there for three terms, three two-year terms, which was uh, the limitation. But during that time, we learned; they learned. Black community in this city developed a high respect for the job we were trying to do. Elvis, on the other hand, at the same time, began to be, during his, during his career, and we've spent a lot of time together. He became really interested in how we did what we did. And I might add, I've never known him to take a political position because, as he said many times, I, I sing songs. I make music. I perform. I'm not a politician. But we spent a lot of time talking about those issues in private.
0: Yeah, that's that's what I always found, and I, I've always kind of felt that that has something to do with the fact that still today he's so universally loved because he never picked a side that would pit somebody against him. He just never stated his opinions. He just kind of kept out of it, which I think helped in the long run because people who might have disagreed with him politically never knew how he felt, and I, I think that's just a great characteristic of his.
1: Yeah, in the grand scheme of things, Danny Thomas was, was beginning uh, toward the end, uh, during that period of time, that I was elected sheriff. He was beginning to push to build St. Jude's Children Research Hospital in Memphis. And I got on board with that situation, and so did Elvis. There are many, many, many canceled checks in their archives where Elvis Presley contributed frequently and often uh, money to help Danny Thomas move the St. Jude's concept forward and I was involved in fundraising for St. Jude. you got to be friends with Danny Thomas. One thing they both had in common was what you just described was they were nonpartisan,
0: hmm.
1: nonpolitical, and they they choose to pick a cause and go with a cause. Elvis on many occasions. Uh, I've known him to, to, to contribute to not only St. Few but many other organizations behind him, simple things like glasses for people who didn't have a glasses so they could see and read, hearing aids, and, and could go on and on and on. Then, uh, when the drug culture began to affect so many people, he supported many of the causes to support dealing with people with drug addiction and so forth. They supported law enforcement to make certain that uh, we were aware of what our tools should be in order to help fight this crisis we had developing in the country. So Elvis, on every occasion that I knew, I traveled with him a lot. I sat with him on the plane. I sat with him on the same road in the theaters, watching movies. I sat with him from the ate dinner at 12, 1 o'clock at night. And it was always from the perspective of a friendship relationship and i i didn't think so much about that until way down the, the line when uh, uh he, i get, began to sense that he had needed some more people that he could trust and believe in without getting uh, the bs deal mm-hmm. from people who want, would tell him what they thought he wanted to know as opposed to telling what he needed to hear. and so i was not one of those people i was not on his payroll and I was his friend. I didn't cut in corners with talking about the reality of what circumstances uh, really meant in my job as sheriff and uh, all the way up until he died in 1977. But, you know, the deal was with him, as we traveled, he wanted to make an impression with the right people that he believed in law and order. He believed he had a proper moral compass of, of life, he had a theology depth that a lot of people didn't know about. A lot of ministers did. He studied modern religions and ancient religions. And he, he was, uh, as uh, his producer had said many times, he's the quickest learner I've ever had uh, in my position as a director and producer of movies. But he said he loved to read. He can read a book between Washington and Memphis, almost even so good at reading. He could read a script or a book or whatever. And it was so interesting to me in that he could articulate what he read in a deep sense of thought. And uh, even though I loved his music, I did then, I still do, I saw in him the love of family, his respect for family, his respect for God, because he certainly did. And his songs made you know that because his gospel singing from the church uh, that he, the uh, Church of God, where he had been a member and his family had been members. You know, is deep rooted in theology. Mm-hmm. And the music was his it was his mission of, of singing sermons, if you would, of speaking for amazing grace and, and those songs that still resonate all over people. Love to, uh, if one of, that defines Elvis Presley. In a big way for me.
0: Yeah, you know, and that one thing you said that just really st- struck a chord with me, and it's, and it's something that we have heard from, uh, Le- like Larry Geller and some other people, right. uh, that Elvis loved to read. I mean, that we've heard that on numerous occasions. That's That's been a common theme with him. I find that so interesting that the people who were in his life that, that really kind of knew him knew that he, he had that love of reading. And, and like you said, I'm sure where a lot of his his love was and, and where he truly liked to spend his free time. Right. Well,
1: his, he loved Memphis. You know, Memphis was not very kind to Elvis early on. I have to put this in this interview, and I say it all the time, because he overcame... Uh, being treated to some degree of inferiority. I had, most of my early life, I had a terrible sense of uh, inferiority complex. And it's because the way I was raised, being poor, you know, and you you lived in the shadows of other people who had had things. And so you had to work a little bit harder to get ahead. Elvis worked harder uh, to do what he did because he, he lived in a city of that nobody, he wasn't recognized as a a leader in the city early on. But he made movies, and he got to have a lot of publicity out there about who he was, and he spent his time every free moment. He came to Memphis, in this town, this place where he lived and lived. But he didn't get the same respect and response from the community leaders at that time, not because they didn't like him. They just didn't understand the gravity of uh, what he really represented, transition of uh, uh, the music culture that's going to be here a long time longer. And they're going to be around.
0: Right. And,
1: uh, <laughs> so, it, it, to me, I sensed that. And I love that. And when I, down the road, I traveled with Elvis a lot, just on trips and going out to Tom Springs and what have you. And uh, I, I, I learned about his sense of humor. I learned about his playfulness with the guys around. I also learned... Of his, his, he loved to be around people. Got, that went with his positioning here. He was the center of attention wherever he went, no matter where he was. If he was at home or was out tra- traveling or whatever, everybody, in, whether you're in Hollywood or, or around the President of the United States or J. Edgar Hoover, or FBI organization, he was the center of attention. A good example of that, when he wanted to go see J. Edgar Hoover, I arranged it because I'd been friends with Hoover through the incarceration of James L. Ray that I held in my jail uh, by the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King. Well, going there, the experience that I had was the FBI wanted this to be a very secret appointment at seven o'clock in the morning, and we were not to tell anybody. And that's the Justice Department building. And that amazed me that we arrived at seven o'clock in the morning to find the answers that we were supposed to use, uh, you had to rope it off because hundreds of people somehow or the other heard that he was going to be there. (laughs) And we were somewhat surprised. So we had to use our security desk in order to create a a wedge to get him in the door of the Justice Department. And I said, my gracious, to be the FBI, they didn't keep their secret very well. (laughs) But anyhow, We went
0: in and and, 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 and it was like all these very seasoned
1: FBI agents that were Bobby like Kennedy's office had been, the Justice Department, FBI, uh, the, the aura there was all these guys, gals, and all dropped down to act like teenagers. They had to see Elvis. And so as we went around through the building, we went different offices, the more we went around, the greater the crowd became. And we began to worry about Elvis's safety right there in the middle of uh, of, of the, the FBI church. building. <laughs> it was <Washington>, D.C. <laughs> so he said, "Let's take a break, go to the restroom." I got to stop over. He had uh, his dress code was a fur collar type thing and a black fur-like jacket, and, and a, a uh, waistband and all the, you know all this stuff, showmans- showmanship stuff. And so we go into this large men's room, tile floor, a lot of stalls for men and so forth. And he di- undid his uh, cummerbund and very intense security. He passed the security test, but they didn't know he had a pistol in his cummerbund. <laughs> it fell out oh. and it skidded across the floor. I'm there. Speaking for him, secure was, secure to us, and all of a sudden, I almost passed out.
0: <laughs>
1: Old turkey, right on the spot. Didn't bother him one bit. He was the king. He was in. He was in charge. He reached over, picked up the little pistol, put it back in his pocket, and went around it like nothing, like nothing ever happened. But it's, it shows you that in the midst of wherever you are, put he was in. Louisiana, or New York, or whatever. Madison Square Garden. He was in charge, and I always loved watching him take charge of an audience in Las Vegas, and the front row being covered was all a lot of other entertainers in Las Vegas or Hollywood and so forth. I mean, he was he was totally in charge while he was performing, and he liked it that way. But he seemed to sense while he was performing, he had he was one persona. In private circles, he was different. Mm-hmm. He wanted to get back to his crowd. He wanted to eat his hamburgers and peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. He wanted to see <laughs> his family. And he was a totally different person. He could do anything he wanted to do for the most part. Anybody would love to entertain him, but he didn't go for that. He didn't accept the social engagements. He just loved to be in charge of wherever he was. I liked that about him. Showed the strength of character that I think propelled him all down the road to be able to survive the terrible things that's happened in the later part of this years.
0: You're listening to the TCB Radio Network Podcast where we're celebrating the life and memory of Elvis Presley with a mission to share his legacy with the world.
2: Hi, everybody. I'm Krista Joy, founder of TCB Radio Network, and I want to let you know that tonight's show is co-hosted and sponsored by PeterAldenEntertainment.com and PeterAldenLive.com. Peter Alden is a classically trained vocalist with a voice like velvet who performs everything from country to pop while specializing in the golden era of rock and roll. Based in Orlando, Florida, but able to travel all over the world, he can come to you. Please support TCB Radio Network by hiring Peter Alden for musical entertainment or to MC at your next event. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at PeterAldenFan.
0: Know that Elvis always had that, uh, you know, the the image is one thing and a man is another, and, and uh I always liked that about him as well. So now, did you did you get in to see J Edgar Hoover? we got almost to this office, and it
1: became became so much of a threat. They asked us would we consider re- rescheduling because it had got so much out of hand. He did not see Hoover, as just as well uh, because he had already done what he wanted to do. He went to the all the officers where Bobby Kennedy had had been in office. So it wasn't so much Hoover. It was the recognition. He was there uh, at the epicenter of law enforcement of this nation. And he was satisfied with that. And then it encouraged him. He decided it was not Hoover that he really wanted to see. It was the president of the United States, Richard Nixon. (laughs) (laughs) he decided Nixon could do more for him than Hoover. And uh, he said, I want to go see... I want to go see the president, so he did go see the president. Walked, drove to the gate, and let him in, and he saw the president. Hoover arranged that for me because he said, "By the way, there was an FBI file program that came on with Alfred Zimbalist Jr. way back, and, and how the files that come up and uh, uh, show a highlighted subject. But the beginning of this program, like one line highlighted with yellow, and that, and." I was watching one night and my name popped up. Well, that scared the daylights. I mean, what am I going to say here? But what it was, it was a letter saying, and and not in part, but in fact, that Elvis has made a request to see the president. Do whatever we can to accommodate him. While I am not a fan of Elvis, we do not want to embarrass our friend, the sheriff, Bill Morris. Wow. Now, and that letter exists in the files today. So, but anyhow, he went to see the president, and while there, you, everybody's heard all the stories. But the one I like best was that he was asked by the president, said, "You, you dress, you dress kind of funny, you know." And he said, "Well, from what? I'm the king. You dress <laughs> kind of funny, but I guess you dress the way a president ought to dress." So it was, he was saying, "I dress the way I should dress for my profession and my status in life, and you do also." And that always told me that here, once again, a kid from East Tupelo, Mississippi, with no college education, graduated from Union High School in 1953, began a career that was a STEM minor from day one. But here he was satisfied with this inferiority complex that had been long since gone. But he was able to stand there, not to be smart at it, but just to say, I know who I am, and I know you do too. But, uh, and I appreciate seeing him. And what, he, what he wanted was a secret, I mean, one of those secret service or federal badges, so he could have authority anywhere in the country. And I'm not sure he got the badge, but he sure got the treatment. Yes, and went he did. on well. <laughs> and, uh, yes, you know, back that time, I may be deviating a little bit. The junior's chamber of commerce was a strong organization of young men between 21 and 35. And every year, there's a selection process to select the top 10 young men in the country that uh, those outstanding in their profession represented. And we had people like George Bush was a judge and and, and, uh, people in high standing, judges of who that person was. We had, for example, the former... Uh, press secretary of the president, he was one of the winners, and on and on. And we had astronauts, but anyhow, I nominated Elvis, and in the nomination, it, he, he I discussed it with him. He said, "I never, ever have accepted an award because I do what I do, and I don't want to separate myself to being special to anybody anywhere." And then I convinced him this was a symbol of leadership, of all the values that 21-year-olds to 35-year-olds, everyone should try to accomplish in their lifetime as a measure of success as a human being. Mm-hmm. A rich life without the riches and all of that goes rich life because you have the values of humanity that exist. This is an award that you don't get and abide, you don't compete for it on, with anybody else. You are going to be the outstanding uh, entertainer in this country, and no other entertainer has ever gotten this award. And this is 1970, and we nominated. And the convention for that event was in Memphis, Tennessee. And the pictures you have there of uh, uh, sitting at the table together was at the breakfast was he made his speech. An outstanding young, one of the ten outstanding young men in the country. He took that award with him everywhere he went, and that was the only one. Did he ever acknowledge publicly?
2: What's amazing is of if course. there was no Bill Morris, he might have not accepted it. It might have just went by the wayside with all the other ones. No, he...
1: He, that's right. I was I was a J.C. and I've been involved. I've been the president. I've been all over making speeches about the value of the Junior Chamber of Commerce all over the country because I saw, and I I have to tell you, I, this, I was driven by this because of one thing that John Kennedy said when he took his inaugural steps. It is, ask not what. Your country can do for you but what you can do for your country and jc organization had a creed of just exactly what he was saying and uh i was inspired by that and that's why i ran for sheriff and i had never had a law enforcement experience i was inspired as a young man to participate and never was wanted to participate in his own way of doing something better for the country not people in Mississippi alone, not the country people who had to stand alone during the present years, not people who had to stand in line uh, and be subservient to everybody else in the community because of lack of resources. He wanted to make a difference. And uh, so did I, in my own way. Uh, and he could do more because he had the resources, he had the talent, he had the platform that he could in every nation. I'll speak to that issue if we have time today. I'll tell you how he influenced our city. A city became the recipient of Elvis Presley in such a way that we just we needed something to move this city forward post uh, assassination of King the city was dormant downtown we were trying to invent ways to capitalize on rebuilding our economic base.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: one of the decisions we made in the city and I was uh, involved in that we were trying to find a niche for music in Bill Street and the uh, music cultures of uh, blues and, and all that went on during our city at that time. Elvis became a less band to that movement, and we began to capitalize on that, and we marketed that all over the country. We had Mississippi River, we had Elvis Presley, we had the blues, we had, and all that went with that. and We, and we called it a Blues, Brews, and Barbecue. <laughs> and, uh, mm-hmm. it, it became a pretty good tag, and then we had Distribution. We had more railroads than, than Kansas City, coming out of Memphis. And so and we've had great growth, but Elvis was the linchpin to music, being a big part of it. It's a clean industry. People came. And so today we have hundreds of thousands of people come to Memphis every year to be a part of the music a celebration, to be a part of a lifestyle in Memphis, to be a part of the blues and all the music. And, and, and we celebrate Elvis and we'll celebrate Elvis as we have done for 40 years since he died, we celebrate him in August, and people come from all over the world. And on August 15th, I'll be one of the speakers as we celebrate his life at Graceland, and thousands of people will be there. I saw that. And, uh, yes,
2: congratulations! So, and, Is this your first time speaking at Elvis Week, or have you before?
1: Oh, yeah, I've 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 spoken. I've, I've been there. I've put birthday cakes for years and years and years. And <laughs> I there, figured. So, yeah, uh, but I've done it a long time. I am a strong advocate of the contribution that Elvis made to the world, mm-hmm. but it gets Absolutely. personal when I when it comes to the town I grew up in, in a deprived environment. So where he's come and then what he's done for a city that did not necessarily flip for him, that he flipped for them and doing all, all he could in life and in death mm-hmm. has made great contributions to the city.
2: Thanks for listening to part one of this interview. Tune in this Wednesday for the exciting conclusion. Don't forget to subscribe to TCB Radio Network on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Breaker, Pocket Casts, Radio Public, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast platform. By subscribing, you'll get a notification as soon as our latest episode drops. While you're at it, please rate us with a five-star review. This will help other Elvis fans find our show. Also, this just in, you can now subscribe to our podcast episodes on YouTube. We also have a YouTube channel that includes archived episodes of our Facebook live broadcasts and more. You can find links to this and so much more at TCB Radio Network.com.
0: TCB Radio Network is strictly a fan publication not affiliated in any way with Elvis Presley Enterprises or any of its affiliates or subsidiaries. Please visit us online at tcbradionetwork.com. All trademarks, product names, company names, and logos mentioned are the properties of their respective owners. All opinions stated within do not necessarily reflect the opinions of anyone else and certainly not Elvis Presley Enterprises.
2: Still the King, our theme song for TCB Radio Network podcast, was written by Shane Douglas, produced by Terry Fullwider at Blue Spot Studios, and performed by Peter Alden and his band, Crown Electric Company, featuring David Fontana, son of Elvis Presley's original drummer, DJ Fontana, on drums. Elvis Presley is still the
0: king. Well, so like the original superstar stop burning ever rockin' and the one and only rock and